0: Warning,
1: file 13 contains content that may be too disturbing for some audiences. It contains graphic descriptions of crime scenes. It may not be suitable for children under 13. Listener discretion is advised.
0: Today's episode is a two-in-one, and it's a little personal for me because the victims in both stories I knew personally. I had the chance to speak with family and friends of the victims and hear directly from detectives who either worked the cases or was connected in some way. Both are veiled in mystery and has had a lasting effect in the hearts and minds of people in our community. And while both are cold cases, they are still ongoing, but has been stagnated by rumor and hearsay. No arrest has ever been made and no charges have ever been filed. So in order to protect the integrity of this investigation, the identity of possible victims, possible players, names have been changed. Because I cannot say with absolute fact that this is what happened, but it's the only information we have to go on. In one particular case, there's so many dynamics and possible leads, it's hard to determine what's fact and fiction. So of all the versions we were given, we decided to go with one that provided us with the clearest picture. This is the disappearance of Fred Stokes and the murder of Tanisha Silas McDaniel.
2: Tanisha Silas McDaniel dedicated her life to helping others. Nearly a year after her senseless murder, her family is hoping someone out there can help her. I had two stars and they
1: took one away. And... Daddy Issues,
2: the new album by Lauren Nicole, is out now. Come into the world of the R&B songstress as she takes you through her journey of love, life, healing, trials and tribulations. Check out her smash hits, I Met a Guy, Sorry, and Look Who's Crying Now. Daddy Issues, the album, streaming on all platforms.
0: city of Pontiac, a small city about 20 miles northwest of Detroit. Eva Stokes, now Eva Stokes-Smith, had let her younger brother Fred move in with her, her son Trey, and her boyfriend at the time. You see, Fred wasn't getting along too well with his father. They were constantly arguing. My sources doesn't exactly say why they were always getting into arguments, but whatever it was, it was enough for Fred to want to leave. With not many options or places to go, Eva being the sympathetic and good big sister that she was, allowed Fred to move in with her. However, Fred and Eva's boyfriend didn't get along too well either. Apparently, he didn't want Fred there. They would argue all the time, and it would just stress Eva completely out. So after one of their usual fights, Eva decided her... Trey and her son's father needed to get some air, so they all got into a car and headed to Belleau. Belleau is an almost 1,000-acre island park in the city of Detroit. It's surrounded by other islets sitting in the channel of the U.S. and Canadian border. In an interview with File 13, Eva said, "As her and her family were driving down the street, she was waving goodbye to Fred. She noticed he was walking towards a gray Durango. Now, she couldn't see who was inside the truck." And what she also didn't know was this would be the last time she would ever see her brother again. Some time had passed since Eva had last saw Fred on that fateful day. My source material couldn't pinpoint exactly how much time had passed. But what we do know is that on June 30th, 1998, Fred's mother reported him missing. Even though Eva couldn't see who exactly was in the truck, she do know that the truck was owned by Fred's girlfriend at the time. And so for the sake of anonymity, we're going to call her Tracy. This missing person's case was being headed by Pontiac Detective McDougal. Detective McDougal immediately hit the ground running. And according to an interview with the detective, the first thing he needed to do was get a description of the victim. And the description details at that time was a young black male around the age 20, about five foot six inches, 135 pounds in good health with no disabilities. Now, when the investigation started, rumors would immediately begin to make its way around the city. As I said in my introduction, several versions of what may happen filled the rumor to the brim. Some of them continue to be repeated to this day. For example, it was suspected that Fred was involved with drugs and that he either owed money or product to individuals. And because he had failed to supply one or the other, he had been kidnapped by some Jamaicans and was never seen again. Again, I can't confirm or deny if that's true, but what I can say is there's no evidence to substantiate that particular claim. I mean, that story sounds like it's straight out of a John Singleton or F. Gary Gray film. But sometimes the truth can be stranger than fiction. And while digging, a story amongst the many came to light that sounded more plausible than all of the others. I have to take you back a little bit before his disappearance and start with his relationship. Fred's relationship with Tracy appeared to be your typical romance. There was no evidence or information indicating that they were having problems. So being in a relationship afforded each other benefits. That most that those benefits would simply be going over to one another's home. After going into someone's home over a constant basis, you would get a pretty good sense of what's in the house. According to my source material, Fred approaches one of his longtime friends we are going to refer to in this story as Jamal. He asks Jamal if he was down to do a B&E, breaking and entering. Jamal asks, well, who's the mark? Fred says, Tracy. Allegedly, he began to inform Jamal on all the items that Tracy had in her home. Now according to internal sources, Jamal claims he declined this offer, saying he never steal from anyone he knows personally. So as far as we know, the B&E did occur. But whether Jamal was involved or not, I cannot say with certainty. Now, according to Eva, people in the community were coming to her saying Fred was attempting to sell them items like electronics and jewelry. Eva really didn't know what to make of this, but she does recall that one particular day, Trey, her, and Fred had gone to Summit Place Mall and Fred had pulled out a lot of money to buy his nephew a new pair of shoes. She remembers this incident clearly because she recalled thinking to herself that Fred didn't have a nine to five job. So where did he get this money from? Now, remember, Jamal says he didn't participate in this b and but not long after it had occurred, Jamal's grandmother house was riddled with a barrage of bullets. Is that incident connected to the b and or was it a coincidence and Jamal was possibly involved in something else that would warrant street justice like this? Well, whatever it was, it was enough to spook Jamal to where he fled the state and hid in Atlanta for a while. Now, according to an interview, Tracy was supposedly dating another man at the same time she was dating Fred. And for the sake of this story, we'll call him Danny. Now, before Jamal's grandmother home was shot up, Tracy had no idea who had broken into her home and stole, according to one report, a necklace worth $2,300, $5,000 in cash and electronics. So anyone who didn't live there was a suspect, including Fred and Danny. Danny was allegedly kidnapped, taken into a garage where he was tied to a chair, beaten and tortured, either because they were trying to find out if he had did it or if he had knew who did it. I'm not 100% sure of the motive. He was left in the garage for a few days and after he realized he was there alone for a time, he was able to get out of the ropes and escape. When interviewed by the police, Danny refused to name who had taken him and refused to press charges. I would guess his thinking was that if these people were brave enough to kidnap and torture me on a hunch, imagine what they would do if I actually did something.
1: Dive into the world of unsolved murders in Black America with File 13. Each week on Wednesday, we explore a new case, whether it's local, historical, or from national headlines. Come with us as we tell the stories about the people who are less likely to have their murders solved. File 13, where we believe a cold case is not a closed case. Everywhere you listen to podcasts,
2: And now, back to the story.
0: So with the last thing that Eva saw was Fred walking towards Tracy's truck, it would be natural for Tracy to be questioned by police. Detective McDougal brought Tracy in for questioning, but get this, she also brings with her an attorney. The interview, for the most part, didn't reveal any pertinent or groundbreaking information. Tracy did confirm that she indeed knew Fred and Danny, but when asked if she'd seen Fred or Danny, she said no. According to the interview, she thought Danny was in jail and she hadn't seen Fred in months. After that, her attorney told her not to answer any other questions. The family began to put up flyers around the city, and on the flyer, it had a picture of Fred, a description of the Durango, and of course information about the last place he was seen. Now get this, Eva began to notice that in one particular location where she would put up flyers, the flyers would always get torn down. When she put it back up, it would get torn down again. When she put it back up, it get torn down again. Sometimes the flyer itself would get altered. Fred's face would be altered and changed into a completely different person. Even the vehicle description would be changed. I had a chance to see the original flyer and I had a chance to see the altar flyer. Um, by the time this episode aired, we should be able to actually have copies of those altered flyers on our website. Eva became very skeptical of not only Tracy, but Jamal as well. She felt that both knew more than what they were letting on. Eva went on as far as asking Jamal where Fred was and what happened. Jamal's response was that he said he doesn't know where Fred is now, and they both decided to go down south for a little bit, and for a little while, and that Fred never came back. Obviously, Eva doesn't believe him. Her guess, in her own words, is that this is a retaliation for Fred stealing from Tracy's home, and that whoever took him caught up with Jamal first, and they were going to kill him for what happened. Jamal pleaded for his own life, and they spared his. Only if he brought Fred to them. So in order to save himself, he brought them Fred because he'd rather it be Fred thrown in a wood chipper than himself. Detective McDougall finally catch a break in the case. Now, I don't exactly know how or what information was given to them for them to catch this break, because, again, this is an ongoing investigation and I'm not necessarily privy to all information, but two names pop up on his radar. It was suspected that these two men were responsible for the shooting of Jamal's grandmother's home, the kidnapping, beating, and torture of Danny, and possibly the disappearance of Fred himself. We'll refer to these two men as Brick and Tony. Now, according to police investigation, Brick had found out who had bought the necklace that was stolen from Tracy's home and apparently confronted the guy. He asked him where did he get it from, and he was told that Fred sold it to him. Now, when Brick confronted Fred about it he put it off on jamal detective McDougal had interviewed brick in 1999 a year after fred's disappearance however brick was incarcerated on some other charges so before he even spoke to him he mirandized him he then presented him with a picture of fred and asked him if he knew him brick says he didn't recognize him now pontiac is pontiac is a city where everyone seems to know everyone you know i'm from there uh, the city population at that time is about 70,000, which means every single person in the city could have fit in the Pontiac Silverdome. It's not necessarily very large. It's not necessarily very small, but it's just enough where everyone seems to know everyone. So Detective McDougall felt that Brick wasn't being truthful. So he began to ask him a few general questions, you know, just to relax him. He asked what street he grew up on. Brick responded, uh, 2nd Street, been living there for about 20 years. Then he asked, what school did he go to? Brick said, Pontiac Northern. Detective McDougal then asked, okay, well, what street is Pontiac Northern on? Brick said he wasn't sure. Now, if you're listening to this and you're from the city of Pontiac, you know it was only two major schools in the city. Pontiac Central, Pontiac Northern. Pontiac Central, the street address was on West Huron. And Pontiac Northern sat on Arlene Street, but it also sat at the intersection of Arlene and, guess what, 2nd Street. When Brick was pressured about his whereabouts during Fred's disappearance, he claimed he was incarcerated. However, Detective McDougall knew that that wasn't necessarily true because according to his release records, he was released in 1997, a year before Fred's disappearance. And was locked back up in 1999, a year after the disappearance. But with no tangible evidence or direct witness accounts, everything is circumstantial. And so the case goes cold for quite some time. Then in 2011, after 150 years, the Pontiac Police Department closed and the Oakland County Sheriff's Department took over. Now, according to an article in WDIV Detroit, Job loss is at a minimum, and most of the new deputies are members of the former Pontiac Police Department, and they are simply changing from blue uniforms to brown. Quote, it gives us more manpower, unquote, says Deputy Dwight Green, a former Pontiac police officer. He says, and I quote, it gives us more specialized units to work on the city's specialized problems, unquote. However, the already extremely overloaded police department now has deputies taking over cases such as the di- disappearance of Fred Stokes. The problem is that typically a police officer has to work to beat for at least two to three years before they can even take a test to be a detective. But now deputies with less experiences are being handled complex cases such as this. In 2012, Detective Kathleen Mickens took over, and around that same time, between 2012 and 2014, they had taken DNA samples from Eva and her mother for comparison with cases in Gwinnett, DeKalb, Cobb, and Fulton County in Georgia. So where are we now? The case is no longer a missing persons case, but is now considered a homicide. And after having a conversation with Eva, I see that the Stokes family really just want closure. If they could just have his remains, he can have a proper burial. When there is a decades-long missing case, it's hard for the family to heal because they want to know how to heal. They keep hope, feeling that there's a small chance that he's still alive. But if he's deceased, they can mourn and begin the healing process. If you have any information about this case, you can contact Oakland County Sheriff's Department at 248-898-4951. Reference case number 98-39680 or 13-94630. And if you don't want to contact law enforcement, you can email us at thefile13 at gmail.com. We'll be back in a few
1: into the world of unsolved murders in black america with file 13. each week on wednesday we explore a new case whether it's local historical or from national headlines come with us as we tell the stories about the people who are less likely to have their murders solved file 13 where we believe a cold case is not a closed case everywhere you listen to podcasts And now, back to the story.
0: Our next case takes place in the same city 14 years later. This case is extremely personal for me because the victim, Tanisha Silas, was my mentee. I first met Tanisha on the campus of Ferris State University in the fall of 1998, the same year Fred Stokes disappeared. It was my junior year. I was just moving into my dorm in North Bond Hall. I had my music blasting and I was neatly organized in my place. I heard a knock on the door. I opened the door and I saw the most extremely energetic young woman I've ever seen. She eagerly and confidently introduced herself and stated her business. She said she was running for some kind of position in the dorms. I can't remember exactly what it was, but whatever it was, apparently a freshman was allowed to hold that position. I voted for her sheerly based off energy and the fact that she was a Leo like myself. She was born August 9th and I was born August 10th. So we were family for life. She was a proud Detroiter who graduated from McKenzie High School. She was a proud member of Delta Sigma Theta sorority, a historical and national black sorority who boasts notable members such as Cicely Tyson, Angela Bassett, Mary McLeod Bethune, Aretha Franklin. I had the opportunity to sit down and interview Tamiko Logan. Tamiko is one of Tanisha's closest sororers, and for the layman who's listening, a soror is Latin for sister. Tamiko and I go back about as far as Tanisha and I does. In fact, Tamiko has known Tanisha since her freshman year as well. You could say we were one big happy family, and even to this day, we stay in touch. What's so significant about Tamiko? is that by all accounts, she was in fact one of the last people to have communicated with Tanisha on the day she was shot. I'm going to play excerpts from the interview so said that people can get a clearer picture about who Tanisha was and how much she meant to all of us.
2: Always warming you up, whether it's through words, a hug, her singing a song, or acting out a song, (laughs) or a skit. You say a skit. Yeah. So we always did skits. We were um, Tanisha was my very first and only roommate in college.
0: So, so y'all started at the same time.
2: Yes.
0: Was it you that was at the door with her? And Bond. And Bond going door to door when she was running for office? I no,
2: I helped her do her little uh, write-up campaign.
0: Because <laughs> that was the first time I met her.
2: Oh, okay.
0: I'm moving in. I'm over in North Bond. I think mm-hmm. stayed over in South Bond. And she was going door to door. I can't even remember what she was running yeah. for. She
2: did it a couple of days. I did her the one time, but I think when she met you, um, I wasn't with
0: her that time. Okay, yeah, because she was with someone, I just don't remember who it was. Mm -hmm. Because all the attention there, it goes to her, because she was just so bubbly and so bright and just so determined and stuff like that. November 12, 2012, a cold, rainy day, but nothing a person born and raised in Michigan would raise an eyebrow at. Tanisha had been in and out of court that day working with juveniles in the Lincoln Hall of Justice. You see, Tanisha worked for Spectrum Child and Family Services, and her job title, according to her LinkedIn page, was foster care slash outreach specialist. Lincoln Hall was located in the city of Detroit, and on this particular day, she had been playing phone tag with Tamiko. Tomiko worked in the same building, and they were trying to catch up with one another to see each other or talk like they would usually do. But unfortunately, their hearings had overlapped one another, so Tomiko was like, hey, I haven't talked to you in all, all day, we'll catch up later, or perhaps tomorrow. Tanisha did not respond. In fact, that text message conversation will be the last time Tomiko would ever communicate with her beloved friend. It was later revealed to Tomiko at the funeral home by the now-retired referee Paulette that tanisha had left early that day she wasn't feeling well so she hopped in her silver 2005 ford explorer and headed home to pontiac on tucker street she lived in the stone gate point subdivision north of elizabeth lake road and easter telegraph road with her husband valdez mcdaniel her and val as he's called hadn't even been married a year and they were due to celebrate their one-year anniversary very soon when she gets home according to the oakland county sheriff's department she may have walked in on a home invasion from the forensic evidence a struggle ensued she was then shot multiple times and left to die in a pool of blood only for her husband to find her a short time later tanisha died a few days later in the hospital now the investigation begins according to sheriff mccabe from the oakland county sheriff's office he says in an interview deputies and detectives found milk crates stacked up at the condominium's back window And that the suspect or suspects cut a window screen, the sheriff said, and came in through the window over the sink. Items stolen from the home that the suspect or suspects didn't take were then found stacked at the back window. Now, the most interesting piece of information I found from my research was that during the struggle, Tanisha was able to secure the killer's DNA under her fingernails. But at this point, I was unable to get any information on if the DNA was ran and if matches were even ever found. But being that the case is still unsolved, that tells me that if they did run it, whoever it was didn't have their DNA in the database, because I have to believe that evidence such as that was followed up on. It's just entirely too important. Now, when it comes to cases like this, spouses are usually the first persons of interest. In fact, oxoricide or the killing of one's wife account for approximately 76 women per month in the United States. So. What police want to do is either eliminate the husband as a suspect or focus their attention on him if the evidence or the motives point his way. Now, according to most news reports and articles, the police say that Valve was very cooperative and he wasn't considered a suspect at that time. Now, I can't say how much time had passed from when that was first reported and as far as I know now, he's still not considered a suspect. However, according to my inside sources in the Sheriff's Department, Valve, from their opinion, didn't seem really sympathetic. And after the first initial interview, they asked him to come back for another interview. And it was at that point that he said he would have to lawyer up.
2: Tanisha and I both uh, worked in the same field. I do um, juvenile justice and um, she worked, I want to say child welfare. So um, you have the juvenile justice system, and then you have the abuse-neglect system. So Tanisha worked in the abuse-neglect um, system. And we would all be down at um, Lincoln Hall of Justice in Detroit Juvenile Court. And every, almost every morning or every day, every other day, whenever we're down in court, we would see each other, call each other, text, and say, hey, you know, what's up? And then we would talk so this particular day it was like a little cloudy raining in the morning i saw her truck um, i was trying to find somewhere to park and i called her like hey you know what i'm saying i see you at court what courtroom are you in so i can come down or whatever um and then i text her and so we were playing phone tag like texting um she's like i'm in court i'm downtown i mean i'm downstairs and i'm like okay bet but we never i think my court hearing ran over we never talked so i left her called her again left her a text message and said dang mm-hmm. i ain't not talk to you today all right we'll get up later or i'll talk to you tomorrow and that was it. So never.
0: Did she Did she to respond to that? She didn't respond to that one.
2: She did not. Okay. Um. I later found out uh, from the referee who actually came when we were at the funeral home, the viewing. She came and she said, uh, referee Paulette. She's I think retired now. But um, she said Tanisha had either fell ill or she left
0: court that day and went home early. So she went
2: home early that day? Yeah, she went home early. And um talking to some of her co-workers they said, yeah, Tanisha said she was going to go home early. So she left court and went home. Which is probably why we didn't talk. Daddy Issues, the new album by Lauren Nicole, is out now. Come into the world of the R&B songstress as she takes you through her journey of love, life, healing, trials and tribulations. Check out her smash hits, I Met a Guy, Sorry, and Look Who's Crying Now. Daddy Issues, the album, streaming on all platforms. And now, back to the story.
0: Now we have to be fair and honest. People grieve differently and they also react to trauma differently. So saying that he doesn't seem sympathetic doesn't necessarily mean that that's the case. In fact, when I spoke with Tomiko, she indicated that when she first spoke with Val after it happened, he was literally screaming in the phone. As far as lawyering up, I can admit that appears suspicious, but it can also be smart. Now I know what you're thinking. If you had nothing to do with it, there's no need for a lawyer whatsoever. And I'm inclined to agree. I mean, after all, this is my wife we're talking about. I'll be eager to talk to the police and I'm probably going to be bothering them on a constant basis, asking if they found any leads, any suspects, any developments. Tomiko says that from her opinion, the police really didn't seem like they were investigating the case thoroughly and properly. And the reason she feels this way is because they were getting basic information about the family either completely wrong or they weren't getting it at all. For example, when it came to Val, they didn't know he had a daughter and a son. They thought Tanisha's father lived in Michigan when in fact he lived in Florida. So when she would follow up with the detectives asking them what did they know, they would in turn turn around and ask her well, what does she know. Tanisha and Val took in the man and let them stay with them for a while. When asked if they investigated him, the authorities were completely oblivious of who he was. Tamiko and her sorority sisters were constantly feeding the police information. But she felt that they weren't taking the case seriously until they called and asked about it. And then it was like the county would entertain them for that moment. Then, after that, nothing. There was information that came in from members of the community and given to Crime Stoppers stating that there was a man terrorizing the neighborhood with a rash of break ins. People were so scared of him, they feared calling the police. So they told Crime Stoppers instead, giving them his name and everything. Was this man investigated? I don't know they shared that val daughter stayed with them her brother from her mother's side of the family stayed with them and he has a criminal background record with charges such as witness tampering so to Miko's position is if you're really looking at the husband and you're looking at everybody you need to look at everybody i mean this is 2012 the county had just took over the city police department a year prior and I can imagine things being in disarray because Oakland County has 62 cities, townships, and villages. But come on, this is someone's sister, daughter, friend, wife, cousin. Tamiko then notices odd behavior coming from Val. I mean, odd behavior such as creating multiple Facebook pages. And when she would ask him about it, he'd say that he was hacked. Sorority sisters felt that he had no sense of urgency or passion into finding out who killed his wife. They were down at the police station more than him. Timiko even brought this concern to his attention, and he says he doesn't know what else they want him to do. They questioned him several times, went through his background. He does have a checkered past, but as far as we know, he's been thoroughly vetted and cleared. So where are we now? I spoke with the county and they initially granted us a full interview, but had to rescind that offer because they had some new developments in the case. So, when I find out, I will come back and update you all. After they canceled the interview, I initially decided not to do this episode, but then I thought to myself, this story needs to be told. Anyone with information should call the Sheriff's Dispatch at 248 858 4911 or call Crime Stoppers at 1 800 Speak Up. I do want to thank you for listening to file 13. Please let us know what you think about the show. And if you like it, please leave us a five-star rating. If you don't like it, leave us a five-star rating. Anyways, you can email us at the file 13 at gmail.com. If you have any suggestions for us, or if there is a case you want us to investigate, this is the last episode of the season, but be on the lookout for file 13 shorts, where we do short stories on unsolved cases in black America. If you are one of the criminals that committed this crime, and you can hear the sound of my voice, I want you to remember, a cold case is not a closed case.